This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumele Lezondi coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625 kHz. That's on the 31m band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also find us on channelafrica.co.za if you want to stream us. I'm with Jonane Tulo, Wisane Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Top stories. The independence of the DRC's justice system in doubts ahead of the country's elections. Remains of nearly 30 victims of German colonial rule to be handed to a Namibian government delegation at a ceremony in Berlin. In economics, Nigeria's presidency rebuffs a landmark oil industry reform law in its current form. And in sport, it's uh, two weeks to go before the 2018 edition of the Kosafa Women Championships gets underway. Jolan Tulo has your news. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. South Sudanese rebel leader Rick Mashar is expected to sign a final peace agreement on Thursday. This comes after Mashar initially refused to sign the agreement on Tuesday. He said several crucial issues related to the agreement remained unresolved. Mashar and President Salva Kiir have held weeks of talks in Khartoum, Sudan, in search of a comprehensive peace deal to end the conflict, which has killed tens of thousands and displaced millions since 2013, James Shimanyula reports. The good news that Riek Machar has accepted to sign the final peace agreement was announced in Khartoum by Sudan's Foreign Affairs Minister and Chief Negotiator El Dideri Ahmed. In a statement issued in Khartoum, Sudan's Foreign Affairs Minister El Dideri Ahmed said, and I quote, Mediators are discussing with IGAD with a view to dealing with the crucial points that Machar has cited out, end of quote. At least 75 people have died from Ebola, according to the latest report released by the Ministry of Health of the Democratic Republic of Congo. There are now 112 suspected Ebola cases. Last week, an Ebola case was confirmed in Oicha Health Zone, which is difficult to access due to conflict. Head of Emergency Operations with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, Dr. Bala Konde, says they are experiencing fear and anger in some communities against Red Cross teams who come to bury the deceased in a with safe and dignified burial protocols. Conde says the safe burials are critical to controlling and contaminating the outbreak. The response to the current outbreak is further complicated by major security concerns across North Kivu that are limiting access to people in need of assistance, treatment and care and making contact tracing more difficult. Egypt's army says it has killed 20 jihadists in the latest round of military operations in the western desert and Sinai Peninsula. The military launched a sweeping operation in February focused on Sinai in eastern Egypt aimed at wiping out militants including from the Islamic State group. In a statement, the army says operations over the past few days had resulted in the elimination of seven extremely dangerous jihadists close to Egypt's western border with Libya. 13 militants were also 
officer killed in shootouts with government forces during army raids in central and northern Sinai. The intervention of the South African Human Rights Commission and Ramotsere Muilalo municipality in the Northwest Province has led to stability and an agreement between local residents of Zerast and foreign nationals in the area. This comes after the foreign nationals were attacked by residents and forced to close down their businesses for weeks. Residents accused them of selling drugs. Manager for South African Human Rights Commission in the province, Mpobu Iganyo, explains. At the end of the mediation, a settlement agreement was signed by all parties present. The issues that uh, perhaps are outside of the jurisdiction of the South African Rights Commission will be referred to the, re- to the relevant institutions for their further attendance. And finally, Brazilian troops are being sent to the border state of Roraima, where local residents have clashed with Venezuelans fleeing the country's economic crisis. In a televised address, President Michel Temer said the deployment was to guarantee law and order and to protect the migrants. The BBC's Katie Watson has the story. Michel Temer blamed President Nicolas Maduro for causing the migration crisis that's seeing large numbers of Venezuelans flee into neighboring countries. Venezuela's problem was no longer an issue of internal politics, he said. It's now a threat to the peace of all of South America. The army will be deployed for two weeks and will be based along the border as well as main roads. Just over a week ago, the border was the scene of angry demonstrations by locals who drove people back into Venezuela after reports that a business owner had been attacked by migrants. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. Thank you, Joalane. It is 17.06 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now, opposition parties and human rights organizations in the Democratic Republic of Congo have questioned the independence of the country's justice system. This after four presidential candidates who were barred from running in the upcoming elections filed an appeal to the Constitutional Court despite little prospects of success. Here's Jean-Noël Bamwenze. They excluded the candidates who have filed an appeal through their lawyers to the Constitutional Court, former Deputy President Jean-Pierre Bemba and former Prime Ministers Adolphe Mozito, Sami Badibanga and Antoine Gizenga. The appeal follows the Independent National Electoral Commission's decision made last weekend, keeping only 19 of the 25 candidacies for the December 23rd presidential election and excluding six candidates for different reasons. The opposition has described the commission's decision as a political one. The senior executive of the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, Abraham Luaka Bwanga, believes in no positive positive result can be expected from such an appeal since both the Electoral Commission and the Constitutional Court are working according to President Joseph Kabila's will. We know that justice in the Congo is managed, I can say, in order to uh, protect uh, President Kabila. You know, the Constitutional Court or the judges have been appointed by Kabila himself. So I really don't think that something positive can come out for those who have uh, filed an appeal. Since here it looks like the decision that has been taken by the Senate has been rejected by those uh, 
Most of human rights activists we have spoken to have told the Channel Africa the DRC justice is not really free and doesn't act independently. They believe this country's justice is manipulated by the regime. And according to this spokesperson of the Nothing Without Women organization, people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo do not enjoy true democracy. Solange Luashiga. It's a pity to see that uh, those six candidates have been excluded from uh, presidential election. It's just uh, a political reason. Bringing uh, this uh, question to the justice, I don't think that the justice will uh, positively answer. You know that um, Congolese justice uh, is not a free. It's a justice which seems to be manipulated by the government, especially President Kabila. But what they have done is just legal. Wait and see what will be the result. But I can't think that uh, the result will be positive. And this shows that democracy in Congo, it's not a true democracy. Because if you can not leave people express uh, the um, political ambition freely, this shows that Congolese uh, democracy is just by name, but uh, indeed no. Especially when we come to political questions, you know, of course. The Constitutional Court has now to look into the matter and make the last decision. The Independent National Electoral Commission will release the final list of candidates for president on September 19th. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. As bilateral talks between Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta and his U.S. counterpart Donald Trump officially ended on Monday in America, human rights groups on the Kenyan coast have applauded the move of the two leaders discussing how to curb terrorism. Diana Wanyonyi is in Mombasa. Addressing the media in the White House after holding closed meetings with Trump, Kenyatta termed the meeting as a big success, saying they discussed matters on the fight against terrorism. I want to just take this opportunity to thank uh, Mr. President and First Lady for welcoming us here to the White House. As uh, President Trump has said, Kenya and the United States have had strong, solid relationships ever since our independence. We are here to renew that partnership we are here to strengthen it very good and excellent cooperation especially in our fight against terrorism because of the neighborhood that we're in al shabaab fights which uh, the united states have been a very strong and solid partner sheikh mohammed khalifa organizing secretary of the council of imam and preachers of kenya says bilateral talks will help both countries to share intelligence information <laughs> 
We will benefit if America will help Kenya by giving intelligence so that we can be able to fight terrorism. I know we have our intelligence too. Just like international networks help each other on intelligence information, I urge President Kenyatta to tell Trump to help us with FBI. Despite the efforts of the Kenyan government to ensure the country is safe from attacks from militia, human rights activists based in Kilifi, north of Mombasa, says families of victims of terror, for example, the 2000 and the Chukikambala bomb blast, which killed nine Kenyans and two Israel children, injuring more than 80. People have not been compensated. Good luck Mbaga, a human rights defender, explains. Ever since that thing happened to this village, there's been no compensation. Nothing has happened to to assist the families that were that were affected, that were involved in the in the bomb blast. We even don't know what to do or what to say because it will be a stark reminder of the past and yet nothing will happen. This won't move any government, especially our government. It cannot be moved by such uh, events. Mombasa-based security expert Abdi Daib says cordial relationships between Kenya and U.S. does not undermine Kenyan troops, but rather it strengthens the mutual working relationship between these two countries. Our relationship between Kenya and America on matters of security, it doesn't mean that Kenyan troops are unable to take control of al-Shabaab or terrorism. It doesn't mean that. Rather, it is work that we do on behalf of the global world. It is work that we do to protect Kenyans and civilians in the world. That was Mombasa-based security expert Abdi Daib and I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa leading the Women's Month conversations. This is Africa Digest. It is 1714 Central African time. You continue to listen to Africa Digest. Now, from Sudan's capital, Khartoum, comes a report that South Sudan rebel leader Riek Mashar will sign the final peace agreement tomorrow. This development comes shortly after Mashar refused to append his signature to the agreement because he said several crucial issues related to the agreement remain unresolved. Here's James Shimanyula. The good news that Riek Machar has accepted to sign the final peace agreement was announced in Khartoum by Sudan's Foreign Affairs Minister and Chief Negotiator El Dideri Ahmed. In a statement issued in Khartoum, Sudan's Foreign Affairs Minister El Dideri Ahmed said, and I quote, mediators are discussing with the IGAD with a view to dealing 
with the crucial point that Machar has cited out, end of quote. It may be important to point out that on Tuesday, Machar and opposition groups supporting him refused to initial the final document, thereby pushing for a review of the quorum for the cabinet or the legislative assembly meetings, saying it remained unchanged after the increase of the cabinet members to 55 ministers. Furthermore, in a joint statement released by South Sudan Opposition Alliance, Machar's group reiterated that the permanent constitution-making process should be through the National Constitutional Assembly and not the government-controlled National Constitutional Review Commission. The final agreement has to be approved by the IGAD leaders before it is formally signed by parties to that very agreement. As has been said at the outset, Sudan's Foreign Affairs Minister, El Dideri Ahmed, issued a statement in Khartoum, tersely bringing to light issues that Machar wants to be dealt with before signing the final peace agreement. Now, Sudan's Foreign Minister Ahmed has spoken about what was agreed before Machar decided not to sign the final agreement. We agreed on the issue of the five ministries that are supposed to be created anew as we have enlarged the cabinet of, of South Sudan from 30 to 35. Additionally, we have agreed on the sharing of powers and competencies within the presidency. Now we have clear line of demarcation for all of the powers and authorities that shall be shared among the five vice presidents. Stephen Jackal, one of Riek Machar's representatives in Khartoum, where talks on the new agreement have been taking place, brought to light the issue of the creation of 32 states, arguing that they were personally and exclusively created by President Salva Kiir. We should not just go with the 32 states as they are. And uh, we need to have it as a multiple choice of 32, 10, and 21 states. And we want to start with the demarcation process uh, because, you know, the 32 state uh, arrangements that was, you know, arbitrarily decreed by president has also annexed some lands of some other communities to other communities. Steve Jackal, one of Riek Machara's representatives speaking in Khartoum, a while ago. And as the people of South Sudan wait eagerly to see if Riek Machar will indeed sign the final peace agreement, the country's information minister Michael McQuay is optimistic that all will go well tomorrow, Thursday, when Machar signs the agreement. We have been following all that was happening and uh, if anything happens like this, it will not be strange to us. But what I know is that at the end of the day, people will come to their senses and join the peace process. That was South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula.
Today, skulls and bones of nearly 30 victims of German colonial rule in the 20th century will be handed to a Namibian government delegation at a ceremony in Berlin. The human remains, mainly of members of the Herero and Nama communities, were shipped to collectors and medical institutions in Imperial Germany to satisfy demand by racial anthropologists who wanted to prove their belief in the superiority of European races. In 1904, German colonial troops violently suppressed an uprising of the Herero and Nama, killing tens of thousands in what has been called the 20th century's first genocide. For collectors, traders and soldiers, the killing fields and concentration camps became a source of a bizarre and gruesome trade. The BBC's uh, Johannes Dell went to Germany and Namibia to find out more. Not far from Christ's Church in Namibia's capital, Windhoek, is the room where the human remains will find yet another temporary resting place, alongside the skulls and bones that were previously returned in 2011 and 2014. The security is very tight. There's at least four doors we're going through. Yes, and we have got, of course, um, the alarm system. Okay, we're now walking into that room, and it's immediately cooler and darker. Tiled floor, whitewashed walls, the basin at the end. It's a little bit like a hospital room. Along two sides of the walls are metal shelves, and each containing rows of the quite sturdy white cardboard boxes containing the remains, mostly skulls of the victims of the genocide, simply marked by a number and the ethnic group they belong to. The Herero and Nama rose up against German occupation in 1904, trying to reverse the loss of land and cattle to the settlers. Tens of thousands were killed in a brutal crackdown, driven into the desert to die of thirst, or worked to death in concentration camps. The descendants have not forgotten. Every year they march through the coastal city of Swakopmund to call for an apology from Germany, for reparations and for the return of the victims who were dehumanized even beyond death. Esther Munyangwe is a Herero activist. We are going to what was the concentration camp. It's where our people died because of these harsh weather conditions that they were never used to. And it's also the same place where bodies were exhumed. Uh, heads were cut off and shipped to Berlin and other parts of the world. No one knows for sure how many body parts were taken from the killing fields or from unmarked graves at the prison camps. But letters in Namibia's National Archive show that German researchers were actively asking for brains and skulls, giving detailed instructions of how to preserve them for their long journey by sea. The historian Jürgen Zimmerer has written extensively about the genocide. The racial anthropologists, the medical doctors, the professors at the major university clinics who engaged in racial anthropological research and wanted basically to prove that the African race, quote-unquote, is of minor value. They wanted human remains and they used the huge number of victims in Africa, in Southwest Africa, and their informal channels to get hold of the skulls. The Namibian government is hoping that this latest repatriation will be a step forward in ongoing negotiations with Germany over the genocide. 
Its chief negotiator is Zedekian Gavirua. We remain mystified that human society of what people could dismember bodies, take them for experiments, and some of them even have as trophies. But we want to reach this point where we will acknowledge that these evil deeds happened and uh, we are prepared to make good and move forward, achieve proper reconciliation. But it's clear the Berlin ceremony is unlikely to heal the wounds. Some Herero and Nama leaders say they've been excluded from the Namibian delegation and activists, both German and Namibian, plan a silent protest vigil demanding what they say is long overdue, a full and official German apology and reparations for the victim communities. As one activist told me, the skulls are speaking and calling for justice. The skulls are speaking and calling for justice. That reports by the BBC's uh, Johannes Stell. Now, Malawi authorities in conjunction with the United Nations have said all is set for the 2018 population and housing census. The census starts this week across the country. The last census for Malawi was in 2008. Both Malawi and the United Nations think the census will help in planning for social and economic development. From Blantyre, George Mohango reports. The 2018 Malawi Population and Housing Census exercise is expected to run for a period of 21 days. Representative Clara Ayangwe recently highlighted the value of census to the development of any country, including Malawi. She also reiterated the UN's commitment to supporting the census in Malawi alongside other development partners. From the census, you will identify the inequalities that are in the economy. And then if we close those gaps in terms of the inequalities, it means we'll be talking about equitable development, sustainable development. Remember, everyone needs to be counted so that no one is left behind. So this census really help us to ensure that there is equitable development in the country. And also the census will help the government in terms of the equitable allocation of resources. So you are allocating resources based on credible data that is coming out from the ground. So it is very, very important for the country. This year's census will collect data using tablets, different development partners, including TFID, USID, Royal Norwegian Government, Standard Bank, Irish Aid and the UN, among others, have provided technical and financial support towards the 2018 census. Malawi's National Statistical Office who administer the event. The institution has since recruited 25,000 enumerators to do the counting with state-of-the-art equipment. Isaac Chirwa is the coordinator of the project. Now we are using the trusted voices in the localities where these uh, myths uh, exist. So we are partnering with the chiefs. As we have seen in the launch, we invited the chiefs to be with us. So we expect them or we ask them to uh, be our advocates. They will be given the messages and uh, uh, disseminate them to the public in their areas and also use uh, several medias like uh, the local radios for those areas to dispel those myths. So we believe that this will work. Capitol Hill has since also allocated close to $5 million towards the program despite calls that the money has to be hiked considering the growing population. Malawians have been aged to aim at having smaller and manageable families to slow down the current rapid population growth, which 
is estimated at 19 million according to the United Nations. The figure is far much ahead of Zimbabwe and Zambia in the Sadiq region or the neighboring countries. Finance Minister Gudo Gondwe remains optimistic. We have our precise data now. I was saying that uh, in 1961 to about 1966, we had uh, imprecise data, but uh, as I said, we thought at that time we were 2.4 million. But when the data, the data came, when, uh, when we, we had a population census in 1966, for example, we had precise da data. Mind you, it's improving every time. The 2018 Malawi Housing and Population Census is being guided by the theme Be Counted, Leave No One Behind. Census, according to development experts, is among the most complex and massive first-time exercises a nation undertakes. Various people, including local leaders, have committed their support towards the data collection period by allowing the enumerators to work in their communities and also help in sensitizing their subjects to be ready and provide all the information. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre, Malawi. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Be a part of the conversation by following us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One, or you can email us. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. 17.30 Central African Time. Jola Natulo with your news headlines is here. Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, Zimbabwean President Emerson Nangagwa has appointed a high-level panel to investigate post-election violence in that country. At least 75 people have died from Ebola, according to the latest report released by the Ministry of Health of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And finally, Egypt's army says it has killed 20 jihadists in the latest round of military operations in the Western Desert and Sinai Peninsula. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Joalane. You are still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa. My name is Spumelele Zondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. 
Now, South Africa's City of Joburg, is 26th edition of Arts Alive International Festival, launches with the annual Jazz on the Lake Festival this Sunday, the 2nd of September. Arts Alive is a month-long festival of cultural events. The legendary Zimbabwean singer Oliver Mtukuti, South Africa's Chesil Brothers, and Vusi Matlasela are among those who will be performing at the annual event. The Zulek Tribute Band, directed by Steve Dyer and featuring Malombo and Tabang Dabane, will be paying tribute to the late Philip Dabane. To talk to us more about this now, we joined on the line by director at the City of Joburg's Arts and Culture, Vuisile Mshundulu. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, Vuisile. Uh, uh, good day, sir. How are you? And good afternoon to the listeners as well. I'm all right. Now, uh, tell us about this event. If you can just remind us who, about what Jazz on the Lake is all about. Well, Jazz on the Lake is one of the premier uh, you know, programs for Utter Life, which is really a collection of different programs touching on different genres of the, of the creative industry as an offering that the city of Johannesburg is presenting to 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 the city. Um, and this is really to try and stimulate, uh, you know, uh, the creative economy of the city, but also presenting, you know, activity and programming that will make Johannesburg a, a desired destination for, for artistic activities. So Jazz on the Lake is one of the, you know, long-standing uh, uh, events that has a, a very strong jazz offering, but also has been featuring other, other genres of, of music over the many years that Arthur Life has taken place. Uh, as you know, this is the 26th edition, and that uh, this year the focus of the event is really to, uh, to push uh, more a reflective approach on who are our heroes in terms of uh, jazz music, and paying tribute to, to those that have really paved the way for South African jazz music. Um, you mentioned earlier on the, the, the tribute band, but we also have Sidney Mabunda, uh, who will be presenting a tribute to Prayuma Sikela uh, on the day over and above the, the lineup they already mentioned. Um, you always uh, seem to have a selection of uh, musicians from the rest of the continent as well. In the past, you've had the likes of Asha, Shewun Kuti, and this time around, you have Oliver Mtukuti. Why is that? Well, you know, we would like to really re-emphasize the importance of supporting our own and really pushing, uh, you know, for a, a much more cohesive, socially cohesive, uh, because Johannesburg is one of the cities that are very, very uh, cross-cultural. They attract uh, people from different parts of the of the world, but particularly from different parts of the African continent. And and Atta Life is really uh, one of those melting pot events that we would like to promote cross-cultural collaboration, but also ensuring that there's a cultural tolerance through you know, a catalytic events such as the Jazz on the Lake, which, you know, features a, a different artistic and cultural offerings from from different parts of the continent. And, and that's really uh, to try and stimulate a greater appreciation for South African and African music and to, to stimulate a greater consumption of, of, of South African music and African music.
Mm. Um, we mentioned four performers. You mentioned one. Um, briefly take us through what's going to be happening, who's going to be there, um, and take us through the day, if you will. So the the, the program will, will start at 10 o'clock in the morning, um, and we've, we have arranged uh, shuttle buses from different points uh, in, 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 in the city, um, that will be picking up uh, people because we would like to decentralize the parking. Uh, so with the shuttles moving from Marks Park, from Matonia Mall, uh, from Bramfontein, uh, and from Kilani Mall to try and, 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 and shuttle people to the event. And it's it's better that people, because last year we had a greater turnout than the, the venue can accommodate. So the venue uh, can accommodate 20,000 uh, patrons and and last year we've had to turn people back because the the venue was oversubscribed. So we'd like to encourage our patrons to arrive as early as possible so that they can feast from the musical offering that's there. Uh, the program will start with development bands that won the Puisana competition that is coordinated by the Department of Sport, Arts and Culture, or in fact uh, Art Culture uh, in the in the province. Uh, Sports Recreation Arts and Culture. That's the correct name. Uh, they coordinating a jazz development program where they feature different bands, and the best of those bands are selected and then are given platforms to showcase the music. So we have two of those bands that will kick off the program for us, and then we will have the you know the, the offering by the the lead uh, the, the lead acts that are featured. Uh, you know we have Braulivan uh, Tukuti who is really a household name uh, and, 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 and well-established. That uh, is, Fima Shasela will also give, will be giving us, you know, a, a good musical tribute. Uh, and then we have the, the band that is coordinated by Steve Dyer, and it will feature a variety of musicians to give tribute, to, you know, to uh, to different uh, musicians such as, uh, you know, Dr. Philip Dawan, who passed on recently. And then Sydney Mavunda will also give a, a, a musical offering. Part of it will be a tribute to Ndate Yuma Sikela the late. So so it's it's a feast of, of really music and it's also the the event has always taken the shape of being a family event where people are, are free to picnic, uh, you know, the venue allows for, you know, uh, people to come with their children to picnic, so it's really of encouraging, you know, family mm-hmm. outings instead of just uh, individual outings. So it, it's really suited for, for, for that purpose. Mm. Um, you say it's a family event. What will it take for uh, families to, to get in? And you speak of the venue. Where is this venue? So so the the, 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 the festival takes place at Zoo Lake. Uh, that's why it's uh, Jazz on the Lake, you know, uh, it takes place at Zoo Lake, and uh, the, the, there is no charge to to come into the festival. So it's a free festival because it's one of the you know services that the city is offering to the citizens of the city. Uh, to say, as a city, we also much as we care about the infrastructure needs, you know that you need roads and you need you know uh, housing and, and so on. We also care about the intangible needs of the cities of Johannesburg. So we are providing a, a service really for the soul of the of the citizens. And and they, mm-hmm. so there's no charge for you to come into the event. But it, it is important that 
at, as people arrive at the event, they are ticketed, so they, you will be accredited to come in, and and those are accounted uh, to make sure yes. that we, we do not have a crowd that is more than 20,000 yes. given the popularity of the event. All right, sure. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, and I'll encourage as many citizens of Johannesburg as possible to come and enjoy the day with us on the 2nd of September at Zulik. All right, sure. Vuizilem Shundulu, the director at the City of Joburg's Arts and Culture, telling us about jazz on the lake taking place at Zoo Lake in Johannesburg. It is a free event, so as he says, if you're in Johannesburg, go there and enjoy the day with the family, but get there early, as he says that. They'll be closing if uh, once they reach 20,000 people. Now, more than 200,000 Somalis have been forcibly evicted from their homes since the beginning of the year. Among those of Evicted are tens of thousands of people who fled a drought, flooding and violence in recent months. The Norwegian Refugee Council, or NRC, is concerned that many of these families were forced to leave with little or no notice. The charity urges Somali authorities and landowners to protect citizens' rights to adequate shelter and housing. Evelyn Arrow is the NRC's advisor for information counselling and legal assistance. The situation is that uh, over 204,000 people were forcefully removed from their homes this year, nearly double uh, the number due to the same period last year, and many of them have been made homeless multiple times. So the number of evictions have risen so sharply, but uh, this is mainly attributed to the large increase in construction in urban areas, especially in Mogadishu. And with the drought last year, vacant land that was occupied by these people who had fled the food crisis and came to the cities uh, to look for humanitarian assistance or also looking for aid. So there has been increased urbanization and this has also resulted in increased prices of land. So landowners and these landowners are both government agencies who own public land and private landowners who own private land. They want back their land and they want to develop it or build on it. Mm. So despite the fact that we have a lot of investment for new businesses in Mogadishu and in some of these cities, this is good for business but uh, it's not good for the people who have been evicted because they have nowhere to go. We are talking about a large number here, 204,000. So what's going to happen to these people? Are they being given an option of going somewhere else or are they just told to move from wherever they are? They're usually given a short notice, so the notice is not sufficient. And so these people are forced to come up with their own alternatives. And some of these alternatives uh, include moving to already existing informal settlements where they may be evicted again. And also they may be accommodated in already congested, overcrowded uh, informal settlements. Some of them are forced to actually move outside the city to areas that are insecure. So there is no alternative accommodation that is usually provided. However, in certain instances where the eviction process is conducted lawfully, which is really, really very highly unlikely, this usually has opportunities where we look at alternative accommodation for them when there is sufficient notice of up to 90 days.
But the notice period and the lack of a due process is one of the factors that actually has resulted into them having nowhere to go. And no word from relevant authorities, perhaps the housing officials, in terms of trying to come up with a proper solution for these displaced people because, as you say, they are desperate. They fled from drought and they really have nowhere to go. The government has been taking steps to address this problem, but more efforts are needed. The authorities need to develop policies on land rights and to improve land laws. And also more access to land should be given to displaced families. And they should also strengthen protection for people living in in the camps. The government has worked with uh, the Norwegian Refugee Council and UN Habitat to develop eviction guidelines. These guidelines exist on paper, but implementation of these guidelines have not been adequate. And so some of these uh, steps need to be taken to make sure that these guidelines are implemented and that there are also enforcement mechanisms put in place to ensure that those that are perpetrating these evictions are actually held accountable. There have been some commitments from the government to actually move into development of laws and policies, but I think we need to see tangible action on this. And the international community should also support with more aid for long-term solutions such as shelter and housing and increased development aid for their home villages so they can return home to restart businesses and return to work to support uh, their families. Lastly, is the NRC responding in any way and what are you managing to achieve? We do respond. As the Norwegian Refugee Council, we have a project of information counseling and legal assistance. This project uh, responds to this as a co-chair of the Housing, Land and Property Subcluster that is chaired by the UN Habitat. And what we usually do is that we are able to collect information and data regarding the eviction, including mapping areas that are at risk of eviction. We also undertake pre-eviction assessment, and we use these reports to share with all the key stakeholders and actors, like we share with the government, we share with the donors, we share with other aid agencies that are working in Mogadishu and find out if we can have a multi-sector or a joint uh, response. Specifically within NRC, we also provide legal assistance to some of these clients who have been evicted and some of the assistance that provided to give them information on their rights, their entitlements and the remedies or solutions that are available or options that they can use to make sure they're able to access uh, alternative accommodation and also if some of them had already existing uh, documentation proving ownership, we also try to make sure we negotiate with the uh, landowners. Evelyn Arrow is advisor for information counseling and legal assistance at the Norwegian Refugee Council. In conversation there with Jane Rabotata, Evelyn is in Nairobi in Kenya. 17.45 Central African time. Here's Usani Matebula. Good evening. Uh, thanks, as Pumalele Coco Femmes operating in Cameroon have moved uh, staff out of the Anglophone region of the country and farmers are abandoning their crops in the area as violence between separatists and security forces intensifies. Sources say the deepening conflict had started denting cocoa output and flow from the southwest, stripping the region of its mantle as Cameroon's top cocoa growing area. 
Telka Koko or Lam Theo Broma are among the firms that have moved the majority of their staff of southwest Cameroon due to safety concerns. In Nigeria, state oil company plans to conduct a feasibility study for setting up two condescent refineries with a total capacity of 200,000 barrels per day. The Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation plans to set up the condescent refineries in partnership with private partners in the southern states of Delta and Imo. Nigeria currently has a 445,000 barrels per day refining capacity uh, which operates well below uh, the capacity due to mismanagement and lack of investment, forcing the NNPC to import the bulk of the country's petrol. And former Steinhofer Chief Financial Officer Ben Lechrang told South Africa's parliament that the pension money lost when the company's shares crashed late last year is likely not to be recovered. It is estimated that about 1.3 billion US dollars of pension money belonging to the public service employees was lost when Steinhoff's shares collapsed after accounting irregularities were revealed. Lechrang, who was briefing Parliament's portfolio joint seating committee, seeking to find uh, the reasons for the crash, says he doesn't foresee going back to its previous financial position. In my mind, I, th- I do believe that the losses that the pension funds took up to date will in all likelihood be permanent losses and not necessarily temporary losses. Certainly in my mind, I cannot see that the share price would go back to the levels it were before what happened in December. And you can see that from the numbers that Steinhoff released, And two of South Africa's state-owned entities are in financial trouble. The newly appointed boards of uh, armament manufacturer Dinell and regional airline SA Express say they found dysfunctional organizations with serious liquidity problems. Acting Dinell CEO Mike Hobe outlines some of the problems they have inherited. Lapses in governance have resulted in the following. Denel being implicated in the public protector's state of capture report, and we now know with the current commission what is uh, ongoing. The formation of Denel Asia, a joint venture that was established without requisite approvals as per the PFMA by both uh, public enterprises and national treasury. Liquidity crisis uh, and suppliers holding, withholding deliveries due to delayed uh, payments. Egypt's tourism revenues uh, jumped 77% in the first half of 2018 to around 4.8 billion US dollars compared with the same period last year. The number of tourists who visited Egypt in that time has increased 41% to around 5 million tourists. The tourism sector is one of Egypt's main sources of foreign currency. But the country has struggled since a 2011 uprising that ousted then-President Hosni Mubarak. Financial indicators, uh, the U.S. dollar at 10.41, Botswana Pula, 10.21, Zambian Guacha, BRICS currencies. The dollar is at 4.10, Brazilian Real, 67.58, Russian Ruble, 70.6, Indian Rupee, 6.79, Chinese Yuan, and at 14.17, South African Rand. Also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 85 cents against the euro. Commodities gold trading at $1,208, platinum $804 per fan ounce, Brent crude oil $76.18 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. Thank you very much, Usani. Here's Neto Chamani with your sports news.
With your latest to Channel Africa Sports News at this hour, I'm Neto N-E-T-O Chemani. From the sports desk, a very good evening. Starting off with football news. It's two weeks to go before the 2018 edition of the Kosafa Women Championships gets underway. South Africa is hosting the tournament for the first time in the history of the championship. The action takes place in the Nelson Mandela Bay region from the 12th to the 22nd of September. Chief Operations Officer of Kosafa Sudi Stombas says they are happy with the preparations and look forward to the tournament. Uh, we had a, a very good meeting uh, yesterday with the city, Nelson Mandela Bay, and uh, the local software infrastructure. Um, went to the stadium, very nice stadium, Wolfson Stadium. I must say I was uh, really blown away, actually. Um, it's right in the middle of a residential area and, um, and within a community, and uh, very good facilities, so we, we're very happy with that. The second stadium needs a little bit of work, but the city is uh, you know, really fully on board and very excited. Um, as you probably know, they've got the Ironman competition right now, so they're up to their ears in it, but, um, but certainly not overlooking uh, football, which is coming hot on the heels of the Ironman. Organizers have added spice to this year's tournament with the inclusion of African powerhouse Cameroon and East African nation Uganda. Distamba says this will up the competition. When, when looking at, at guest countries, we wanted to, to bring countries um, that w- had not not necessarily participated in our tournament before, um, and and teams that were going to make a difference uh, and to to provide you know um, a meaningful uh, a preparation for for our own two teams, Zambia and, and uh, South Africa, that had qualified. Bloemfontein Celtic captain and goalkeeper Patrick Dinyamba will play in his 300th game for Celtic tonight against the Kaiser Chiefs in a South African Premiership match at the FNB Stadium in Johannesburg. The milestone comes after having been with. Celtic for 10 years. The Cameroonian joined the Celtic in 2008 from Donere Yaounde. He is only seven games away from reaching former Celtic veteran Valen Free's record of 306 appearances. Dinyemba joins the likes of Paulus Masehe, Spiwe Chabalala and Vuyomir with 300 or more appearances in the PSL. 300 games, 10 years. I'm glad to get the big team. It's nice feeling. I just hope that I'm going to get my players get with a, a nice performance or so, going against, against the big team. But whatever happened here, yeah, I'm very happy. I'm very happy because it's a long journey. I'm glad not uh, miss many games, so I'm very motivated and I'm very happy now. That, 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 that's my first goal. My second goal is with the blessing of William Priest to beat his record with 307. So I just hope the grace of God, injury free, I can, I, can, I can beat that record, 307, and be, and be the most willing uh, player at, at, at Blue Fountain Celtic. So, yeah, I'm happy. On to athletics news. Nigeria's hottest male sprinter at the moment, U.S. based Divine Oduduru has expressed his displeasure over the manner he was treated by Nigerian government at the recently concluded Asaba 2018 African Senior Athletics Championship. Oduduru, who ran 20.60 seconds to win a silver medal for Team Nigeria in the 200 meters, told The Guardian from his base in Texas, United States, that the treatment given to him and other foreign-based athletes at the end of the championship was shameful. He is threatening not to honor invitation from Nigeria next year unless things change. In April this year, the 21-year-old Oduduru broke the Texas Tech 14-year 100 meters record at the Michael Johnson Invitational in the United States by running a personal best of 10.10 seconds to win the 100 meters race. He had earlier broken the school's 20-year-old 
record in the 200 meters, thus establishing himself as Nigeria's hottest leg at the moment. And finally in cricket news, a vicious article penned by a South African freelance white cricket writer describing Zimbabwe as a fascist country whose national team should not be allowed to compete against their international counterparts has sparked outrage in this country. The article was written by Telford Vice, part of a cabal of unrepentant racist white cricket writers who have been using the sport to feather their crusade to soil the good name of this country. Vice, who is based in Cape Town, has been a vicious critic of this country and its leadership and at the weekend used his weekly column in the Sunday Times of South Africa to describe Zimbabwe as a fascist nation, equating it to Hitler's Germany and Benito Mussolini's Italy. The journalist's article was based on a campaign in which he tried to argue why no one should play against Zimbabwe and said the chevrons who are set to visit South Africa next month should not have been allowed to come into SA. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sports, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.56 Central African Time, multi on Africa Digest recapping our top stories. The independence of the DRC's justice system in doubt ahead of the country's election. Remains of nearly 30 victims of German colonial rule to be handed to a Namibian government delegation at a ceremony in Berlin. And that wraps up Africa Digest. For myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producers Fiso Mashejo, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On WhatsApp, we're on plus 27763033327. Plus 27763033327. We leave you with Ndizagulinda by Vosinova. Ndizagulinda <laughs>